It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, a school shooting, gun use, and violence toward children that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In the summer of 1979, Irish punk group The Boomtown Rats released their hit single, I Don't Like Mondays. The pop ballad quickly climbed the charts and stayed at number one for four weeks. The song was inspired by the January 1979 shooting at Grover Cleveland Elementary School with the chorus, Tell me why I don't like Mondays. I want to shoot the whole day down. On January 29, 1979, 16-year-old Brenda Spencer fired over 350 rounds at the school building, injuring nine and killing two. The lead singer of the Boomtown Rats, Bob Geldof, had heard about the tragedy while touring in the U.S. He said, quote, It was the perfect senseless act, and this was the perfect senseless reason for doing it. So perhaps I wrote the perfect senseless song to illustrate it. The lyrics trilled, all the playing stopped in the playground now. She wants to play with her toys a while, and school's out early and soon we'll be learning, and the lesson today is how to die. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. This is our second and final episode on Brenda Spencer who, in 1979, opened fire on the students and faculty of an elementary school across from her home in San Diego. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parkcast.com slash merch for more information. 
Brenda Spencer was the youngest of three siblings, raised in a middle-class home in the suburbs of San Diego. She was a normal, happy child who loved animals and riding her bike around the neighborhood. However, when her parents divorced in 1972, Brenda's world became one of abuse and neglect. She alleged that her father, who gained custody of the children, both verbally abused her and sexually molested her from the time she was 12. By December 1978, 16-year-old Brenda had become so depressed that her counselor, Noreen Harmon, was afraid the teenager was suicidal. And for Christmas that year, her father gifted her a 22 caliber rifle. According to Brenda, quote, I had asked for a radio and he bought me a gun. I felt like he wanted me to kill myself. It all led to that fateful morning of January 29, 1979. In today's episode, we'll cover the timeline of the shooting and Brenda's eventual surrender. We'll also talk about what motivated Brenda's actions and where she is now. We'd like to add an extra warning before continuing this episode. Brenda Spencer's crimes against children and her targeting of a school may be especially upsetting for some listeners. Please listen at your own discretion. On the morning of January 29th, Brenda Spencer told her father she was too sick to go to school. Wally Spencer let Brenda stay home and he went to work. Grover Cleveland Elementary School, located in a one-story building across from Brenda's house on Lake Atlin Avenue, had 300 kindergarten through sixth grade students and 13 teachers. Brenda herself had gone to school there until 1974. At around 8.30 a.m., alone in the house, Brenda picked up her 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle. There was only one clip in the rifle, but it held 10 rounds at a time. Brenda had stolen boxes of ammunition from her father's van the night before, and she was supplied with at least 700 rounds of long-shelled 22 caliber bullets. Using the butt of the gun, Brenda smashed out two paned windows on the front door. She was oblivious to the shards of glass that fell near her sock-covered feet as she pointed the rifle at the school. Brenda's first shots took down three students, a nine-year-old and two eight-year-olds. Their injuries were serious, but non-lethal. One of the eight-year-olds was so disoriented and frightened after being shot that she got to her feet and staggered to her classroom. She sat down at her desk, too afraid to tell anyone of her injuries. Even as two of their classmates lay bleeding on the pavement, the other young children waiting outside the school didn't understand what was happening. They continued to stand around waiting for their principal. Unaware of the carnage, parents pulled up in cars and dropped off their kids as usual, attributing the sounds to pop caps, firecrackers, or backfiring mufflers. When a few children finally grasped the situation and started to scream, at first, this only made things worse. The crowd of kids heading inside the building stopped moving in response to the horrified cries. A renewed volley of shots strafed the ground and school walls, more children, now frozen in fear, were hit. One seven-year-old student, who had been shot in her elbow, began to walk in circles near the sidewalk, clearly in shock. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here as well as throughout the rest of the episode. Please note that Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. 
Sociologist Ju Young Lee has interviewed many shooting survivors. She said, quote, There are some people I've met who didn't even know they got shot in the moment. Their adrenaline was running so high, and only later they discovered that they were bleeding from wounds. Others feel intense shock and disorientation. This type of reaction may explain why one injured student had continued to her classroom. The young girl didn't understand what had happened to her. As bullets continued to fly, the spell of paralysis finally broke and kids ran for safety. However, they couldn't tell where the shots were coming from, so not all the kids ran for the school's entrance. Some hid behind the bushes or trees along the walls of the school building. Other children made it to the parking lot and huddled behind cars. Almost immediately after the shooting began, the principal, Burton Rag, rushed out from his office. The 53-year-old was a World War II veteran and therefore recognized the sound of gunfire, unlike the students and parents. He immediately tried to rescue the children who had been shot. Principal Rag dashed toward a little girl lying injured on the pavement, but he didn't make it. He was struck with a bullet near his heart. Staggering backward, his arms flailing, he fell to the ground next to the bushes. Sixth grade teacher Daryl Barnes saw this happen and rushed to Principal Rag. He stood over the principal, frozen in shock, as blood poured from Rag's chest. A volley of shots whistled near Barnes' head, breaking school windows and setting off the fire alarm. This galvanized Barnes into action. Taking up Rag's cause, he raced down the driveway in the direction of the gunfire toward the wounded student. He scooped up the injured girl and ran back to the school, making it inside the building uninjured. He carried her to a bed in the nurse's station. More bullets whizzed through the already blown out windows. Barnes later told reporters, quote, five shots came in with three of them just over our heads. Mike Sukar, 56, the school's custodian, grabbed a blanket and ran outside to help Principal Rag. The beloved Sukar, known by the kids as Mr. Mike, was retired from the Navy and saw action in both World War II and the Korean War. Sukar rushed to Rag's side, unfolding the blanket to cover him, but he was also struck with a bullet to his back. It knocked him to the ground a few feet from Rag. Daryl Barnes, from the window of the nurse's station, witnessed Sukar's injury and heard him say, quote, My God, I've been hit. A sixth grade student who encountered the two fallen men on her way to class heard Sukar moan and tell her to go get the police. She stopped walking, confused. It wasn't until Barnes yelled at her from the window to run that she realized she was in danger. She quickly ran to safety. Still, more kids were being dropped off from cars or walking up the sidewalk toward the school. Daryl Barnes and other teachers frantically screamed at them to run for cover. Some children, confused by the still blaring fire alarm, stopped on the pavement, unsure whether they should go inside the building. Other children, not knowing where else to go, dove to the ground along the chain-link fence near the playground. A fifth grader was crossing the school grounds, staring at Principal Rag in the bushes, when she suddenly felt a bullet hit her side. Despite her wound, she managed to make her way to safety. One nine-year-old boy recalled that when he saw Principal Rag and Mike Sukar lying in the bushes, he thought they were playing. 
Then he felt what seemed like an electric shock go through his body as he was shot. The bullet passed through his left shoulder and out his chest, missing his heart by an inch. Daryl Barnes shouted to the nine-year-old out the window, guiding the dazed boy to the rear of the school and out of the line of fire. Another fourth grade girl was shot in the stomach and buttocks. She fell to the ground and began throwing up, calling out for her father. A female teacher rushed out of the school building and pulled the little girl into one of the classrooms. Throughout the first wave of shooting, several teachers repeatedly ran out amid the flying bullets to rescue wounded or scared students. Inside the school building, students, teachers, and staff huddled in bathrooms and classrooms. The adults were able to get many of the kids into the auditorium, which had a wall instead of windows between them and the shooter. The adults shoved tables, chairs, mattresses, even a piano up against the side of the building exposed to the shooter. They told the kids to lie flat on the floor. Some of the kids cried or murmured prayers. By 8.45 a.m., the San Diego police finally arrived and Brenda ceased firing. Two adults lay critically wounded and eight children were injured. The police had been notified of the shooting within minutes of its starting, but the elementary school was relatively far from the city proper. As a result, the first responding officers took 15 minutes to arrive on the scene. 28-year-old officer Robert Robb drove his patrol car up to the school cautiously. He had to edge around two wounded children lying in the driveway. Outside of the rumbling of a garbage truck down the block, the area was eerily quiet. By now, no further students approached the school. But Officer Robb and his partner, Officer Dennis Doremus, could see several kids cowering behind cars or lying prone along the playground fence. There were bloody smears on the ground where injured children had been moments before. Officer Doremus went to the children hiding along the fence and guided them to safety, while Officer Rob rushed to Principal Rag and Mike Sukar. They were still alive, but Rob could tell they were in critical condition. Meanwhile, at about 8.50 a.m., a reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune heard about the shooting on the police scanner. Soon, every reporter for the newspaper was put to work, digging up more information. Reporters Steve Wiegand and Gus Stevens began calling the residents of Lake Atlin Avenue to see if they could provide any details about the shooting. The first call Wiegand made happened to be to the Spencer residence. It was almost 9 a.m. when Brenda answered the phone. Without a clue that he was talking to the shooter, Wiegand asked the girl on the other end of the line what her name and age were. Brenda told him. Wiegand then asked her if she'd heard anything about the shooting. Brenda enthusiastically replied, quote, Yes, I saw the whole thing. Thinking he'd hit the jackpot, Wiegand asked Brenda if she knew who did it. After some hemming and hawing, Brenda replied, quote, Sure I do. The shots came from 6356 Lake Atlin. Startled, Wiegand asked, Isn't that your address? Brenda giggled as she replied, Sure, who do you think did it? Then she hung up. Coming up, the police identify Brenda as the shooter and try to convince her to surrender. Now back to the story. 
At 8.30 a.m. on January 29, 1979, 16-year-old Brenda Spencer aimed her 22 caliber rifle through the front window of her house and started shooting at Grover Cleveland Elementary School across the street. As panic erupted, bullets hit eight children, the principal, and the custodian. Hearing of the shooting, local newspaper reporters started phoning residences close to the school for news. Steve Wiegand of the San Diego Union-Tribune happened to call Brenda herself. She identified herself as the shooter before hanging up on him. The stunned reporter could only think she was joking, so he called back. Brenda seemed happy to talk to Wiegand and asked if this was an interview for the newspaper. When he said it was, Brenda seemed pleased. She said, quote, This will really blow my dad's mind. It will flip him out. When Wiegand asked Brenda why she was shooting, she replied, quote, I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. Then, using the current slang for police officer, Brenda said something about wanting to shoot a pig, and she hung up again. Outside of the school, Officer Rob tried to comfort Principal Rag as he lay on the ground, mortally wounded, waiting for help. Rob finally heard a siren and turned to see an ambulance pulling up beside his patrol car in front of the school. But when he turned back to the principal, they were met with a fresh volley of rifle shots. Rob felt a bullet bounce off his bulletproof vest. Paramedics quickly dashed over. Rob helped them get Principal Rag on a gurney and place him in the ambulance. When they all went back for Mike Sukar, Rob felt a tingling in his right arm and hand. Then he collapsed to the ground. As Rob would later learn, the bullet that struck his vest minutes before had ricocheted off the plating and entered the right side of his neck. It ended up an eighth of an inch from his spine. Rob eventually recovered from his wounds, but he could never work as a police officer again. Sporadic shots kept coming from the Spencer house across the street. Officers Rob and Doremus, the paramedics, Principal Rag and Mike Sukar were pinned down by gunfire, unable to escape. More patrol cars arrived to help, parking east of the school's driveway out of harm's way. Police had now ascertained the location of the shooter, but the front door of the Spencer's house was set back about 20 feet from the end of the garage. It prevented officers from firing back with any degree of accuracy from a distance, and venturing closer would put them in the line of fire. With gunfire continuing to come from the house, the officers also couldn't go to the aid of the injured and their trapped fellow officers on the school grounds. They were at an impasse. Luckily, Officer Ted Kasinak and a school security guard came up with a plan. Shortly after 9 a.m., the two men commandeered the garbage truck that was picking up in the area. Officer Kasinak drove the truck up over the curb and onto the sidewalk before crashing into bushes near the school's driveway. The injured children and adults now had a shield against the gunfire. The officers' heroic efforts were met with a renewed flurry of shots from the Spencer house. But Kasinak escaped out the passenger door unharmed. The paramedics were able to transport the wounded into ambulances. All the remaining occupants of the school, children and adults, were led to safety by police out the back doors of the building. By roughly 9.10 a.m., 
Back at the Evening Tribune newspaper office, Steve Wiegand told his fellow reporter, Gus Stevens, about his bizarre conversations with the teenage girl claiming to be the shooter. Gus decided to call Brenda himself. She answered the phone and wanted to talk, boasting about getting in fights at school. She also proudly reported that she just shot a pig. Then Brenda told Gus she saw someone moving outside and said, before hanging up, quote, I have to go. I want to shoot some more. I want to get me another pig. Despite this statement, Brenda didn't fire another shot, as the garbage truck now blocked her view of the school and any potential targets. By 9.30 a.m., the wounded adults and children had arrived at the hospital for treatment. Unfortunately, at the hospital, both Principal Rag and Mike Sukar died of their wounds. By 9.55 a.m., San Diego Police Department hostage negotiators P.E. Olson and Chet Thurston arrived on Lake Atlin Avenue. Authorities didn't see any movement in the Spencer house. After evacuating all the residents in the area, the negotiators and a SWAT team took over the house next door to the Spencers and patched a line through to Brenda's phone. Officer Thurston, using a bullhorn, continued his attempts to make contact with Brenda, requesting that she pick up the phone. Twenty SWAT team members took up positions in the school, on the street, and even on surrounding rooftops. One hundred uniformed officers were in the area, controlling traffic and spectators. News crews lined the street. Helicopters buzzed overhead. But there was no sign of Brenda Spencer. Fearing the 85-pound teenager had already escaped out the back door, the SWAT team prepared to shoot tear gas canisters inside and invade the premises. But at 12.06 p.m., Brenda finally answered the phone. No one but Brenda knows what she was doing in those three hours between the time the last shot was fired and the moment negotiators finally got her to pick up the phone. Lead hostage negotiator Officer P.E. Olson was on the line when Brenda finally answered. In an attempt to establish rapport, he asked Brenda if she was okay and if she needed anything. Brenda replied she wanted a Burger King Whopper. Olson told her she could have one if she surrendered. According to the Harvard Law School program on negotiations, the goal in police negotiations is peaceful resolution. Negotiators are taught seven essential skills in their work. In addition to building rapport, they're taught to use patience, active listening, respect, a calm demeanor, self-awareness or staying focused on the task, and adaptability. As Olson tried to open up communication, Brenda told him she could hear noises outside and saw the SWAT personnel around the house and school. She added that she could shoot them if she wanted. She said, tell them to back off. They're pissing me off. Olson, wanting to keep Brenda calm, told the SWAT team to move back from their positions. He then asked Brenda to do something in return and surrender any weapons she had, but she refused. Olson asked why she had started shooting the kids. With false bravado, Brenda told him she did it because it was fun. She said, quote, It was like shooting ducks in a pond. It was so easy. I enjoyed watching them squirm around after they had been shot. Brenda stated she was angry at the school custodian, Mike Sukar. She said, quote, He was always out there ordering the kids around. 
I didn't think this was a good thing. I wanted to make sure I took care of him. Also, I know I shot a pig. When Olson asked Brenda if anything had happened that day or over the weekend that made her upset enough to kill, she replied, quote, Everybody swears at me all the time. My father swears at me. I grew up hating people all my life. At school, my friends. I hate everybody. I grew up hating people all my life because they were mean. Olson asked Brenda more about her father and if he'd done anything to upset her, but Brenda refused to talk about him. Olson asked if Brenda had a message for her father, and she finally opened up a bit. She said, quote, Yes, I do. Tell my dad to go get screwed. Psychologist David Bernstein recently proposed a theory called abusive multiple transference. Put simply, the negative feelings that a person holds toward their own abuser are transferred onto a new victim. They also transfer the power and dominance of their abuser to themselves. Brenda possibly transferred the rage she felt for her abusive father to other authority figures, like a school principal, a custodian who she thought ordered the kids around, and the police. In addition, she transferred the power to commit abuse from her father to herself. Police had located Wally Spencer shortly after the shooting and brought him to one end of Lake Atlin Avenue behind barricades. As the day went on, Wally paced back and forth, hands in his pockets, head down, avoiding reporters. Olson realized, after Brenda's comments about her father, that Wally couldn't help talk her into surrendering. In fact, talking to Wally at all might only make Brenda more upset. Brenda's mother, Dot, was also contacted by police. Dot said she was at Torrey Pines, where she worked for the Andy Williams Open golf tournament, counting money for the organization. Dot recounted in a later interview, chuckling, that when the police said they were picking her up, she told them, quote, I can't go. I've got a desk full of money. And they said, you're coming. So they came up and got me. When Olson asked Brenda if she had a message for her mother, she said she didn't. She added, quote, I don't like her either. Olson also informed Brenda that her counselor, Noreen Harmon, was outside. Brenda said to tell Noreen hi and that she wished Noreen was inside with her. Noreen had been very concerned by Brenda's emotional state a few weeks before the shooting. In a letter Brenda later wrote to author Jennifer Furio, she corroborated those feelings relating how severely depressed she was before January 29th. In Furio's book, Letters from Prison, Voices of Women Murderers, Brenda wrote, quote, My father had done everything a person could do to another person. The beatings, the touching, the emotional abuse, all from the one person I should have been able to trust the most or go to for safety. He was the one doing all the things you're supposed to protect your kids from. I got no help from counselors at school, no help from anyone. At the time of the shooting, it doesn't appear that Brenda had informed anyone in her life about the abuse from Wally. Even Noreen Harmon was unaware. Yet Noreen stressed to Olson that Brenda was likely suicidal. Olson asked Brenda if she'd seen a psychiatrist lately. Brenda told him, quote, Oh, I've seen a shrink. I gave him three pages of notes, but that's all. Peter Langman, clinical psychologist and author of two books about school shootings, said in a recent NPR segment on teens who commit mass killings, quote, 
Whether or not they've been diagnosed or whether or not they're severely mentally ill, something is going on that could be addressed through some kind of treatment. It's possible that if Noreen Harmon's concerns had been heeded and Brenda had been more closely examined by mental health professionals in December, January's tragedy might have been averted. At the Spencer household, Brenda remained on the line with negotiator P.E. Olson. It was around 1.30 p.m. by now, and he still hoped he could convince her to surrender. During the call, Brenda told him she used drugs, saying, quote, I use any dope I can get my hands on. Today I took some downers, smoked some pot, and drank some beer and whiskey. This statement was later disproved. Law enforcement found no drugs or alcohol in her system when they administered a drug test. Then, as she had done with her classmates at school, Brenda began to brag to Olson. She said, quote, I like to fight. Whenever I fight, I fight dirty. I had to fight a friend over a dope deal. He'd ripped me off. I had to split his head wide open. She also boasted that she'd stolen ammunition from different stores, as well as from her father. She said, quote, I totally ripped him off. He never even knew. Of course, he's never home to find out anything anyway. However, beyond stealing ammunition from her father's van the night before the shooting, the rest of her statements were unproven and probably Brenda's way of trying to feel more empowered. Author and professor of criminology Scott Bond said in an interview that mass shooters generally don't get enjoyment from the one-time killing spree itself. He said mass shooters are often, quote, people who feel powerless in their own lives and they're basically saying, F you to the world, take this. I'm going to take as many of you out as possible and you will remember my name. Brenda had likely been feeling powerless for a long time, abused by her father, so depressed that she'd been seen as suicidal and yet not taken seriously by the psychiatrist, Brenda empowered herself in a very tragic, violent way. Coming up, Brenda faces the consequences for her actions. Now, back to the story. After firing 350 bullets in the direction of Grover Cleveland Elementary School, 16-year-old Brenda Spencer remained locked inside of her house. By now it was after 2 p.m., several hours after the shooting had ceased. On the phone, lead negotiator P.E. Olson once again suggested that Brenda surrender. She told him she'd think about it. Hoping he might have finally worn her down, Olson told Brenda he was going to hang up and call back in 20 minutes to get her decision. But unfortunately, when he called back, Brenda still refused to surrender. In fact, Brenda told Olson she wanted to stay in the house longer and do some more shooting. She explained that she'd learned an important fact on one of her favorite TV shows, SWAT. She said, quote, if I shoot at the police, they'll shoot back. Not understanding why she would want the police to shoot at her, Olson told Brenda it wasn't a good idea. He said if she shot at the police, it would end tragically. Brenda became increasingly agitated as they spoke, and Olson was afraid she really would start shooting again. In a letter published in Letters from Prison, Brenda explained that on the day of the shooting, she'd wanted to die. She claimed she'd attempted suicide before January 1979 and failed, though there isn't concrete evidence to verify this. 
Still, Brenda went on to write that she thought the shooting out the window toward the school would cause the police to arrive, and continuing to shoot with police outside would result in the police shooting her. From what she'd seen on television, she knew they never missed. This tactic is often referred to as suicide by cop. P.E. Olson changed tactics, trying to keep her from resuming her fire. He told Brenda that if she started shooting, he couldn't control the SWAT officers. They might launch tear gas into the house, which would hurt Brenda's pets, a rat, a snake, and a dog. At this, Brenda seemed to grow less agitated. She asked if what she had done was in the news and if she was on television. Olson replied it was probably the case, as there were quite a few news vans in the area. Brenda told him if she was arrested, she wanted to be sure she was taken away in handcuffs. Then, after almost three hours of negotiations, Brenda finally agreed to give up her weapons. She didn't reveal what made her surrender. She could have simply been exhausted. She could have felt she'd gotten the attention she had sought, or she could have just realized she had no other alternatives. Before coming out of the house, Brenda unloaded her rifle and pellet gun, as instructed, and then walked out the front door. She carefully placed the weapons on the driveway, turned around, went back into the house, and got back on the phone with Olson for more instructions. Brenda exited the house again at 3.09 p.m., and two SWAT officers apprehended her. She didn't resist. On January 30th, the day after the shooting, Brenda was arraigned. Because of the seriousness of her crimes, the district attorney's office urged the court to try her as an adult. However, for now, Brenda was charged in juvenile court with two counts of murder and 10 other criminal charges. If convicted, she would receive a maximum sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. The media had a field day with the case, and news stories were everywhere. Brenda's quotes about not liking Mondays and watching the shot children squirm were replayed on every station. Both Wally and Dot's homes were pelted with rocks and eggs. They received hate mail and death threats. Brenda's first lawyer, Robert Butler, asked to be relieved from her case because he also received death threats. Dr. Thomas Rogers, a psychiatrist who examined Brenda for her pre-trial evaluation, concluded she was a young misfit who was deeply troubled by her parents' divorce and living a bleak existence in her father's home. Other mental health professionals who examined Brenda confirmed her fragile mental state, saying she showed characteristics of schizoid personality. They felt she should be treated in a mental health facility, not incarcerated in prison. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, schizoid personality disorder manifests itself by early adulthood through social and emotional detachments that prevent people from having close relationships. People with it are able to function in everyday life, but will not develop meaningful relationships with others. They're typically loners and may be prone to excessive daydreaming as well as forming attachments to animals. Brenda was thought of as weird by her classmates in school and had very few friends. She usually preferred solitary activities like photography, target shooting, and caring for her many pets. She made up stories about taking drugs and getting into fights that most likely didn't actually occur. 
causes for schizoid personality disorder aren't fully known, but a prior brain injury may have caused Brenda to develop symptoms. In a 30-year study, psychologist Dr. Tuira Kopanen found that several psychiatric patients who had experienced traumatic brain injury had lesions in the frontal lobe area. These lesions possibly caused social interactional and attachment problems, loneliness, and subsequent schizoid development. When Brenda was 14, she was in a bicycle accident, striking her head on a telephone pole. It caused her to black out, and she felt woozy for at least a day afterward. She wasn't evaluated for injury at the time, but after she was arrested, doctors performed brain scans. They discovered Brenda had damage to her frontal lobe. In addition to frontal lobe lesions, most mental health professionals theorize that bleak childhoods, where warmth and emotion were absent, might also contribute to the development of schizoid personality disorder. After Brenda's parents divorced, she said she felt abandoned by her mother and was abused by her father. After her previous attorney resigned Brenda's case, the court appointed attorney Mike McGlynn to defend her. He argued that because of Brenda's young age and psychological problems, she lacked the criminal sophistication to be tried as an adult. McGlynn hoped she could receive psychological help and rehabilitation in a youth facility until she was 23, at which point her case would be reassessed and further action taken. McGlynn was also afraid Brenda would be assaulted and harmed in an adult prison. The prosecution, however, was pushing for the maximum sentence, and Brenda didn't appear to be cooperating with her own defense. In fact, throughout the weeks after her arrest, Brenda shut down and was unemotional and uncommunicative with everyone, including the psychiatrists who examined her. Perhaps because Brenda wasn't talking, lawyers and psychiatrists turned to other avenues for information, one of them being the press. But the press had gotten its information from interviewing friends, classmates, and neighbors of Brenda's after the shooting, and it was mostly misinformation. Some of her fellow students said they were only nice to Brenda because they were afraid of her. Two teenage neighbor girls, Colleen and Mary O'Connell, told reporters that Brenda liked to torture animals, including setting cats' tails on fire. Brenda's friend, Susie Stewart, said Brenda told her she'd always wanted to be a sniper. Neither of those statements were proven as true. Brenda's trouble with the law the previous year also came up in news stories. As we covered in our last episode, Brenda and her friend Brett Fleming were accused of shoplifting as well as vandalizing Grover Cleveland Elementary School. Brenda's penchant for bragging to classmates had led them to believe she not only loved shooting guns, but she also carried a knife up her sleeve or in her pocket. She also often boasted she was always wasted on drugs like heroin and pills. But again, there's no evidence of this. And her family claimed even one beer made her sick. Still, Brenda was seen as evil, sadistic, and beyond rehabilitation. Attorney Mike McGlynn knew Brenda wouldn't get a fair trial in San Diego County. After several hearings in July 1979, McGlynn got the case moved to Orange County. Then the Boomtown Rats came into the mix. They were an Irish punk band fronted by lead singer Bob Geldof. Brenda's seemingly casual reason for her shooting spree affected Geldof so much, he and his bandmates created the song, I Don't Like Mondays. 
The song described the events of a school shooting similar to what happened in Brenda's case, with the stunned reactions of parents and police. Though the answer to Tell Me Why is I Don't Like Mondays, the song's conclusion seemed to be that the reason is so horrific as to be beyond comprehension. Geldof said later that Brenda wrote him from prison about the song, saying she was glad she'd committed the shooting because it made her famous. When the single was released in the summer of 1979, it became a smash hit in Europe, eventually reaching number one in 32 countries. In August 1979, Columbia Records announced it would release the album containing I Don't Like Mondays in the United States in October. This also happened to be when Brenda Spencer's trial was set to take place. Mike McGlynn, outraged at how the negative publicity again might affect fairness in Brenda's trial, contacted Columbia's parent company, CBS, and begged that they hold the release until after the trial. McGlynn also pointed out the lyrics could cause emotional trauma to the victims and their families. But CBS denied McGlynn's request and claimed that the timing of the song's release was purely coincidental. By the end of September, McGlynn had a decision to make. He knew that if Brenda was found guilty at trial of two counts of murder, she would get life without parole. If she pled guilty instead, she could possibly be paroled after 25 years. On October 1st, 1979, Brenda took McGlynn's advice and pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. Her sentencing would be set once she turned 18. In the meantime, Brenda was sent to San Diego County Juvenile Hall. Brenda's father and mother have always maintained they have no idea why their daughter committed the shootings. Wally blamed many of Brenda's problems on the negative influence of her friend Brett Fleming. Dot said in an interview after Brenda's arrest, quote, This incident has been a great shock to me. If anything, it seemed like Brenda was happier than ever in the past year before the shooting. Wally and Dot visited Brenda as much as they could when she was at Juvenile Hall. In fact, it was while visiting his daughter that Wally met the person who would become his second wife, Sheila McCoy. 17-year-old Sheila was, for a time, Brenda's roommate in jail. She was released from Juvenile Hall in August 1979 to stay at a treatment facility, but in November, she ran away. Sheila's whereabouts were unknown until May 1980, when authorities at Juvenile Hall were informed that 41-year-old Wally Spencer and 17-year-old Sheila were married. The only reason statutory rape charges weren't brought against Wally was that Sheila's mother consented to the marriage. Sheila allegedly looked so much like Brenda that Wally's neighbors asked him if his daughter had been released from prison and was back living with him. In a letter to family friend Jan Minor, Brenda described Sheila as being able to pass as her sister. There's no information, however, on Brenda's reaction to Sheila marrying her father. But if there were doubts about Brenda's assertions that her father sexually molested her, this new development strongly pointed to Wally's inclinations. Sheila was pregnant when she moved in with her new husband, Wally, on Lake Atlin Avenue. She stayed until shortly after their baby daughter was born. Then she ran away, leaving the daughter with Wally. On April 4th, 1980, the day after her 18th birthday, 
Brenda Spencer was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. She showed no emotion as the sentence was read. Attorney Mike McGlynn later told reporters he had to accept this decision so that his client might have hopes for parole someday. Brenda was sent to the California Institution for Women in Frontera, California, and immediately began serving hard time. Though she sent seemingly cheerful letters to Jan Minor, saying she was at least glad she wasn't suffering beatings from her father anymore, Brenda had a difficult time adjusting to prison. She attempted suicide a few times, once by trying to cut her wrists with a piece of glass. She was often put on suicide watch. Her mother didn't visit Brenda in prison very often, but her father, who still lived in the house on Lake Atlin Avenue, made the drive to Frontera to see Brenda most Saturdays. During her 2005 parole hearing, Brenda also said that after decades of discord, she and her father had become friends. However, she still maintained he had abused her as a child. Without a trial, Brenda's case was never fully investigated, and she never gave a full statement. In the years since 1979, she's given various accounts about what was going through her mind before and during the shooting. Brenda claimed in a 2001 letter that she thought she would shoot into the air out the window to attract the police. She fired 350 rounds of bullets that morning. It's possible a great majority of them were random, unaimed shots. Brenda hit only 11 people in the rampage, even though many children walked through her line of fire or even froze when they were unsure where to go. Her family and friends knew Brenda to be a crack shot and thought she could have killed many more people if she'd wanted to. Eric Hart, a private investigator and attorney, claimed in his book, Does Anyone Like Mondays? The Brenda Spencer Murder Case, that she wasn't shooting to kill the children. Most of their wounds, whether in the wrists or buttocks, were not life-threatening. But, Hart says, when it came to the principal, Burton Rag, and the custodian, Mike Sukar, both authority figures in Brenda's mind, she shot to kill. Brenda also meant to kill Officer Robert Robb, and it was only his bulletproof vest that saved his life. But without more insight from Brenda or more research, it's hard to say what the exact reason was that Brenda shot into a crowd of elementary school children. It was definitely a cry for help. But if Brenda targeted the school simply because it was nearby or for another reason, she has never spoken about it. Brenda Spencer holds the tragic distinction of being the first mass school shooter in the United States. After her spree in 1979, there wasn't another high-profile mass school shooting until May 1998, when 15-year-old Kip Kinkle drove to Thurston High School in Springfield, Oregon, killed two students, and wounded 25 others. Education Week reported that in 2018, 24 school shootings resulted in the injury of 79 people and the deaths of 35 students and teachers. The majority of these casualties were at the February 14th shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, and the May 18th shootings at Santa Fe High School in Santa Fe, Texas. Brenda has stated that she's very aware of her legacy and feels guilt about it. She said, quote, with every school shooting, I feel I'm partially responsible. What if they got the idea from what I did? 
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Dick Schroeder. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Kristen Kirby and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 